the legendary, the captivating, the epic human Vanessa Van Edwards, the charismatic human behavioral detective is back, guys. Now, she is someone whose superpower Literally, her superpower is deciphering the hidden secrets behind our smiles, our handshakes, our quirky quirks. And she's now joining me in this two-part episode that you don't seriously want to freaking miss, guys. With her contagious enthusiasm, with her absolute sweet, endearing, contagious enthusiasm, she has a great, incredible knack of decoding the social puzzles that she's helping us learn to read between the lines and spot the lies like a freaking pro so that now on people don't get to manipulate you or trick you because you see the signs the second they walk in the door so guys get ready with your pen and paper because there's going to be so much information here on exactly how to show up and spot the hidden signals Now, before we dive in, guys, if you want to elevate your listening experience and empower yourself even freaking more than you already do, then go check out Women of Extra Impact subscription on Apple Podcasts. You can listen, guys, with zero ads and exclusive curated playlists on essential topics like health, confidence, business and relationships that you can access with utter ease. So go over right now and give yourself a dose of extra impact and subscribe to get your first week absolutely free. Go to apple.co slash women of impact. That's apple.co slash women of impact. We have to get very specific on what cues are and what they mean. That way we can trust. Hmm. I have an instinct. This person is lying to me. Okay, I know exactly what cues to look for Mm. to confirm or deny that bias. I want to talk about gut instinct, women's intuition, and whether we can trust our instincts and intuition or whether there are signs and cues that we can actually steer by instead of just saying, I've got a gut feeling. And you being the master of behavioral science, it's going to help us break down all the things that we can identify so that we don't waste our time, so that we can assess people accurately and we can hold the power. Yes. Okay, let's do this. First impressions, gut instincts. So research has studied first impressions, and on average, they find our first impressions are only 76% accurate. And notice I said only. 76% sounds like a lot. Right? You're like, 76% accurate? Great. That leaves 24% that's not. So what I want to talk about today is, yes, we do have a first impression, but there is a lot of room for, is this person truly a good person? What are their intentions? And what's most important here is your own filters. So yes, we have great gut instincts, but your filters can mess up your first impressions. Here's an example. This is a study that changed my life. They found that neurotic women, so women who are worriers, who are a little bit more emotionally sensitive, and oftentimes neurotic women have overbearing mothers, that's a whole other topic, Mm -hmm. that they often misinterpret facial expressions as negative. So they will look at neutral faces and find a neutral face negative. This means that if you have a filter where you're looking for negativity, where you've been burned in the past, or you have a bad relationship history, you could misinterpret someone who's neutral as negative. 
So we have to be really aware that, yes, we have these filters. And so I think a much more accurate way to interpret people is, yeah, you can trust your gut instinct, but following up with a specific nonverbal protocol to make sure that you are identifying all the cues that you know exactly what you're seeing. Another really interesting study, just one more, is um, they devised a study where they had computer-generated faces, and they generated certain faces to be threatening. There's faces that we find more threatening uh, based on brow shape and chin shape and eye shape. And they computer generated very threatening faces to not threatening faces at all. When they showed people pictures of these faces, people could very quickly identify the threatening faces. No problem. But when they took away the very threatening faces and they only showed people non-threatening faces, people made up threatening faces. In other words, we sometimes are looking for these negative cues. We have a very strong negativity bias. And so if you meet 10 amazing potential partners in a row, your brain will be looking for something wrong out of some of them and might make it up. Oh, okay. So why do we do that? It's called a negativity bias. So I believe me, I'm, I wish I could say we were all positive and optimistic, but that's not always the case. We, for survival, back in our caveman days, we had to be constantly kind of on the hunt for problems, right? If we were laying in our cave, we had to go, is it going to rain tomorrow? Should I harvest early? Should I collect more water? Mm-hmm. Like we had to be on the lookout for negative, for, for problems so that we could solve them ahead of time. The problem is today that remains and it can be a sticking point in a lot of our relationships. It messes up our speed reading because we think, well, there has to be something wrong with this person. There has to be. And so we look for, we make up things that might be wrong with them because our brain is searching for something negative that we could then try to fix. Okay, that's so powerful. And as you were talking there, my mind also goes to, but it's a great defense mechanism, Absolutely. right? Because when you have been burned, if someone has abused you, whether they've um, they've lied to you and you found out later or they've, mis- they've abused your trust, something happens that you go, well, I'm going to remember that so that next time. Yeah. I'm never going to happen. Again. It's never going to happen again because it's so heartbreaking. Right. So how do you know in those moments then when something is a, a negative bias yes. or an accurate assessment that you've trained yourself to look out for so that you don't get hurt again? Cues protocol. We have to get very specific on what cues are and what they mean. That way we can trust. Hmm. I have an instinct. This person is lying to me. Okay, I know exactly what cues to look for mm. to confirm or deny that bias. And that's what I want to talk about today is like confirmation is I have this gut instinct. Okay, great. You just picked up a scent. Do not trust that instinct until you verified it. Ooh. Verification and confirmation. Then you know, okay, I know I saw those cues and I also know what to do about it. If you see a cue, a danger zone cue or something that makes you feel nervous, What do you do with that information? And so my goal is, yes, trust your gut instinct as I need to pay closer attention. But that's all it is. Mm. Having a spidey sense or not liking someone or worried about someone just means that you have to pay closer attention. It doesn't mean you have to refuse them from their life or they're definitely a problem. It means you have to dig deeper. All right. So I'm assuming let's just put um, the situation where someone's gone on a date. Yeah. Do you then advise it to be longer than a coffee because again, I'm hearing people these days in the dating world where they're like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do dinner because I know within the first 10 seconds, Lisa, whether I actually am interested in them or not. And so why on earth should I do Mm -hmm. an entire dinner if I can actually thin slice them, do a, um, you know, Mm -hmm. a micro assessment on their behavior and then decide within the first 10 seconds. Is that like a bad idea? Are we actually doing a detriment to the dating world right now by only doing a coffee? Okay. 
there is a difference between attraction and negativity bias. Oh, okay. Right? So if you're going on a date with someone, yeah, in the first 10 seconds, your body and your brain can very quickly assess if there's an attraction there. For example, and this research is pretty new. They haven't identified exactly what's happening. But they think that when we first see someone else as a potential mate, we're trying to assess would they be a good hormonal match for us. So for example, we can tell a lot about someone's hormones. It's kind of crazy by our facial shape, by the shape of our jaw. For example, like, so I'm a female. So if, uh, if someone was assessing me and a male was looking at me as a potential mate, they might be looking at the health of my hair. They might be looking at the symmetry of my features, which indicates estrogen. They might be looking at the quality of my skin to see if I'm nutritionally healthy. Our brain is making all those calculations. Mm. Even if you don't want kids, we're still kind of subconsciously making those calculations. So you are right, or people are right into saying, the first time I meet someone, I have to do an attraction check <laughs> for sure. And that might be a short coffee because you're just trying to see, are hormones syncing up? Like, Is there an attraction here? Yes. The next step, though, is the idea of trying to speed read someone's personality. So attraction is step one. Great. You're attracted to someone. By the way, that could be friends too, mm-hmm. right? I feel like when I meet someone, right away I know if we're going to be good friends or not. Like, oh, we like knew. me and you, right? yeah, like, we're besties. Like, I was with Tom over here, and then, like, I saw you in the kitchen, and I was like, who's that? That's my friend, right? Like, yeah. And we just immediately hit it off. Like, we, like, go off to the side. So I think this works physically, but also, like, for friends as well, where you just know if there's, like, this, like, mm, we're just, like, vibing. Okay, that's attraction. That's something different. The next thing is speed reading their personality. And in that case, it is helpful to have at least a couple of minutes beyond small talk questions. And the reason for this is the very first step of speed reading. Speed reading is this idea that you want to get to know someone quickly. And so you want to know their intentions. Can you trust them? Are they friend or foe? Are they on your side? That's what speed reading is. It's trying to very quickly assess if someone's going to be on your side. Mm. Okay. So I like to think of speed reading in three different steps. The very first step is you have to have enough time to baseline someone. Baselining is the very first step of speed reading someone. Baselining is how someone looks, sounds, and acts under non-threatening normal circumstances. So let's take the dating example, okay? So let's say that you're on a date with someone, and usually the first five, ten minutes of a date is socially scripted, right? Oh, you're right. You kind of get into a date, and it's like, oh, how are you doing? Good. How are you? So what brings you here? Well, and where are you from? Uh-huh. And uh, how long have you been on the dating site? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Like y- you've answered those questions a million times before. So you're not really getting much out of them. But during this time, you should be baselining. So this is okay. Everything from literally, I would start with the top of their body all the way down. You're doing a full body scan. What kind of facial expressions do they use? Do they use a lot of head nodding or head movement? Are they very animated? Do they use a lot of hand gestures? Are they very stoic and still? You're just trying to like in your mind get a mental snapshot of how they look because when a red flag comes up, you are looking for a difference in the baseline. Mm-hmm. Have you ever like been with someone and they're acting a certain way and then all of a sudden you get to a topic and they're like acting different? They act weird. They do something weird. That's a mm-hmm. red flag. So the whole point of this period is you're trying to figure out how do they look and sound when they're just kind of in their social script. What's really important for base? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna. I was just gonna add to that. Yes. Actually, is that if you've got a red flag in your head already, but from mm. past experience, mm, let's mm. say, and you sit, then that person does it immediately. The red flag. But over time, I start to go. Oh, it's not a red flag. Actually, that's just them. That's it. Okay, let me give you a really specific example of this. So I have a good friend. He shall not be named, and he makes a disgust micro expression 
when he speaks. So there's, there's seven mm. different universal microexpressions. They were discovered by Dr. Paul Ekman. And what disgust looks like is when you raise your nose up to the upper whites of your t-shirt and you kind of, ugh. So when we don't like something, we're like, ugh, I don't like it. I'm disgusted. The funny thing about disgust is liars will often do it when they're asked a preference-based question and they're lying. Like, you'll say to someone, so uh, what do you think about the new girl? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's great. <laughs> right? And they're actually showing <laughs> yeah. disgust. So he was showing disgust all the time in conversation. And I was like, is he disgusted with me? Is he disgusted mm. with himself? And I was like, red flag, red flag, red flag. But when I was, as I was baselining him, I realized that's his punctuator. Every human being has punctuators. Punctuators are things that we do frequently that just are kind of habitual. Do you know what yours is? Oh, no. Well, I nod a lot. Nod. I guess. Which <laughs> someone told me the other day, apparently they butcher me on Reddit because I'm a, nod- I'm a nodding freak. And I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> but I was like, sure, fine. Nodding is your punctuator. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I'm like, nodding, nodding is your punctuator. Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. Yeah. So like, nodding is So my punctuator is an eyebrow raise. Mm. So like I have to be careful with that because sometimes I, I also do an eyelid raise and I look really scared. Oh, so actually this is great. I actually love you telling us the things that we do that we may not realize yeah. as well as the things other people do because I think this is super they're, fitting They're subconsciously doing it to you too. Yeah, yeah. Right, so like he was punctuating disgust, which it's funny because he has trouble making friends. And I think it's because he doesn't realize he literally looks disgusted with you all the time. You feel oh. judged when you're with him because he's always like, and so I think that the reason why he's literally having trouble connecting is people are like, do you not like me? Are you disgusted by me? It's because he's accidentally showing disgust. So in my baselining, right, those first few questions, I realized, oh, this is just his mm. facial habit. So everyone should figure out what their punctuators are. So the way that you can do this is you can watch a recorded video of you in a couple of different scenarios. I would try like a Zoom meeting, business meeting. If you can, I know it's like so weird to like Zoom a video date or like record a video date, but maybe a friend can help you where you just your end. What are you doing frequently and regularly as you ask questions and as you answer questions? And it could be anything. It could be facial. It could be nodding. It could be a gesture. Like I know some people who do this as their punctuator. Just play with their hands. Yeah, like they like they, like they oh, self-soothe their hands. They don't even realize they're doing it, but it makes them look nervous. Mm. They're not actually nervous. Mm. This is just like how they how they are, right? So it could be something physical, it could be a facial, it could also be um, a vocal tick, right? For example, that I have one friend who constantly vocalizes. So she's always going, ah, mm, oh, oh, mm. <laughs> right? Aww, that's so cute. I, I like it. Like, <laughs> it makes me feel like, like good. It makes me feel like yummy. <laughs> I think, I feel like I'm food, you know, because she's always like, mm, oh, ah. Like when we're on the phone, it's, she's always doing that and I like, like it. Okay. So like she has a vocal punctuator and that's just part of her kind of shtick. Okay. So that's great. You should know what yours is. There's some great positive punctuators, right? Nodding is a really positive one. My eyebrow raise is a positive one. An eyebrow raise is a universal sign of I'm listening. But if I add the eyelid raise, have you ever seen someone who looks permanently surprised? You're <laughs> scaring me. Right. It's horrible. Mm. I had to work on that. Mm-hmm. I used to raise my eyelids up and it would make people feel a little bit nervous. <laughs> I think it's because I was nervous. Mm. Right. Like I'm a recovering awkward person. I struggle with social anxiety. And so what was happening was it was like a, a cycle where because I'm nervous in social situations, I would make that face a lot, which made me feel even more nervous. Maybe people perceive me as nervous. So as I began to tackle my confidence, my radical confidence, and feel better about myself, I felt less of a need to do that. 
So what kind of facial expressions are you doing? Are you using any of the negative facial expressions like disgust, like anger, where you're tightening your lower lids and, and pressing your lips into a hard line? Any of those things, you can begin to work on those because that might be why people are speed reading you as angry or disgusted mm. or closed off. Okay. And then there was one more, actually, if you don't mind, which, yes. which is the eyes, which is like, you actually like it when a guy's like, they didn't, wasn't there a Hard study? lower lip. Yeah. Yes. Do you mind explaining that? Oh, I that? love this one. Okay. So this one took me a while to identify. And it happened when I was reading People Magazine's Sexiest Man of the Year for research. Of, of course. course. <laughs> Such course. a hard life. Of course. I also watch The Bachelor for work. Um, that's how I get the TV from my husband on Monday nights. So I was like reading People magazine and I noticed that in the magazine there was men who were smiling, there's men who weren't who weren't smiling, but almost every man were hardening their lower lids and like looking at the camera. So they were either like or it's like, what is happening here? What is that lower lid hardened? And I looked it up and it when we harden our lower lids, it helps us see details. So for example, if I were to say, Hey Lisa, can you see that spot on the wall? If you look far away, you actually harden your lower lids because you try to see, what does that say? It's like a ver- mm, form of like squinting. Squint, yeah. yeah, exactly. So when we do that, we're blocking light into our eyes so we can see more detail. When we're trying to take in as much as possible, we, we widen our eyes. So it's a very simple biological response. Yeah. So we like men who are looking at us so closely, they're trying to see every detail. <laughs> Right. We recognize that if someone's really looking at us, they're scrutinizing us. They're thinking, I want to see everything about you. And boy, does that turn us on because we want to be seen. Yeah. Literally, that's what I was thinking is yeah. that the number one thing in any relationship yeah. is, are you, do you feel seen? Yeah. And so when, when I heard you say that, I was like, it's so genius. These small little things. And it feels almost a little sultry as well. Like there is some like, hello. Hello. Of course. Like the, well, bedroom eyes. The bedroom eyes. Yeah. Right. Like it's close. And actually, yeah, Tom, um, in photos of him, I would always pull the ones where he's like looking like squinting. He's like, you always like the bad boy look. I never understood what he meant, mm. but that's why that's it nice. wasn't necessarily the bad boy look. It was the, I'm looking at you. Okay. Let's break this down even more. So hardened lower lid details, scrutinizing, looking closely. Hooded lid. So you, you've been doing actually both. So if we harden our lower lids, we're trying to look more closely. But if I hood my eyes too. And hood your eyes means what? Hooding your eyes is close to our O face. Marilyn Monroe, yeah. right? Well, she was always hooded. In fact, her very famous picture, she's usually like this. She has no hardening of the lower lid. It's all hooded because when we orgasm, I'm not going to do it for you, but when we orgasm, we tend to close our eyes or hood our, or, or, or partially close our lids. Mm. So when we have these sexy pictures of men who are, it's a little bit like I'm looking at you and I'm in pleasure. Wow. That's <laughs> fascinating. I love this stuff so much because it's that little detail. I didn't even realize the difference between the eyes. Yeah. So yeah, you were doing, you were doing both. Yeah. We should. Now, by the way, look, I love, I, this is really important to watch for. Like it's really good when, if you're saying something in a, on a date, or in a meeting and someone hardens their lower lids at you, it's not always a good thing, mm. right? Like if, if someone's, if you're talking about something and you made them nervous, they might harden their lower lids to say, whoa, 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 what is she saying? Right? Like if you're talking about your mm-hmm. ex or you're in a business pitch and you start talking about prices and someone all of a sudden hardens their lower lids at you, take note because that means they are listening very closely. They have gone from listening to scrutinizing. So it's not always a good thing. And when I explain it in my book, this is just a cue to be on the lookout for. 
sometimes it's very positive. It means someone's looking deeply. But sometimes it's like they're scrutinizing mm. you. And you want to make sure. Like, for example, if I were to walk in a room and someone were to like, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Right. You'd be like, whoa. Same thing with like, yes, I want you to look sexy in your profile, dating profile pictures. But do I want you to have every, every profile picture like this? <laughs> no, it's not. a little much. Yes. <laughs> like, a little much. Yeah. Right. But that's why. We tend to like, you know, it's sexy when a woman's like laughing. It's because she tends to tilt her head back, hood her lids and go, <laughs> that's sexy, mm. right? It's because we're hooding our lower lids and we're tilting our chin up. We're exposing this part of our neck, which is a very uh, pheromone filled part of our neck. And so that's why that's such a sexy when girls are flirting or sub women are flirting subconsciously, they'll go, <laughs> They're actually like letting off their pheromones. They're hooding their lower lids. It's an instinctual way that we flirt. So it's just interesting to know all these things because there's a right place and a wrong place, I think, for them. Yeah, context, yeah. actually. Context, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so right. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next thing, like all of this is so incredible. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. Like, I love learning yes. this shit so much, homie, yes. because A, like I said, I know when I can use it and when I well, shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and then again, the things that I may begin off that I didn't even realize. So as you say about the neck thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also heard you say the difference between an up nod and a down nod. Ah, and yes. it's like, who, the, like, obviously you're <laughs> okay. the one that, but I was going to say, who the hell figures this out? It's Me. you. Yeah. But these are the things when yeah. I think about us women using our gut instinct, our interpretation, how we can protect ourselves from being lied, cheated on, bamboozled, manipulated, yeah. all of these things. I feel like these cues are just the tools that we need. Yeah. And if we get the tools wrong, then we can misinterpret things That's it. wrong. And there's only 96 of them. <laughs> They're learnable. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's a very learnable thing. Once you learn them, I don't, I don't have confidence naturally. Like, I don't feel confident naturally. The only way that, like, my side door into confidence is going into relationships. And I know I have a negativity bias. I have a very strong filter for misinterpreting neutral cues as negative. Mm. And it got me into a lot of trouble. I, I ended relationships that I shouldn't have because I was misinterpreting things. I was over worried about things. Once I learned, no, no, I know how to confirm this bias. 
with these very specific cues, that gave me confidence because I didn't have to doubt myself, overthink. If you're a social overthinker or if you go on a date and you get home and you lay in bed, you just rethink every single thing that you said and that they said, that can go away, Mm. right? Like you can learn how to be like, no, no, I know what I saw. I can trust my instinct on this. So there's only 96 of them. And the up and down knot is a fun one. So I mentioned opening the neck. So whenever, this is a very um, delicate part of our body, right? Mm. So when we expose our neck, it's like we are saying, I'm open, I'm trustworthy, I'm not scared. When people are afraid or defensive, they tend to tilt their head down, mm-hmm. right? We try to protect our jugular, right? Because we want to make sure no one's going to, so you'll notice if people are really nervous, like when people are, they like, they mm-hmm. take up as little space as possible, they tilt their head down. That's a nervous gesture. So one thing I notice with men, I don't see this as much with women, but with men is they do two different kinds of nods. When a man sees a man they do not know, but they want to acknowledge their presence, they nod down, protective gesture. Hey, hey, what's up? Yes, hey, down. It's a protective gesture. I don't know you, so I'm not going to open up to you, but I'm acknowledging you. Whereas men, when men see, and I'm curious in the comments if people think this is true, when men see a man they know who they trust, they acknowledge up, hey, what's up? What's up? And like, you can almost always predict, like if I'm, if I'm like creepy people watching at Starbucks, I can almost <laughs> always predict if someone knows someone or not or trusts them or not based on, hey, what's up? Mm. Hey, versus, hey, hey, I can't even do it. But like, I don't even do that nod. Yeah. That's the thing I notice with men. I think they do those two different nods. So the question is, um, why just to men? Would it be with a woman? So I think that women, this is a social construct. My hypothesis, and this hasn't, I don't think this has been studied. I think that women want to be likable. Mm-hmm. Women were taught from a very young age that everyone should like them. And so I think women tend to just nod more. Hey, it's so good <laughs> to see you. So we just default mm-hmm. to open. Right? That's why I think women are just more trusting. You know, we're just taught, you know, be friendly, be likable. I, I will walk down the street and have men be like, hey, girl, smile. What? <laughs> because we've been like taught that we have yeah. to be likable. So I think we default mm-hmm. to hi. Oh. Hey. We always default up. So actually, in in saying that, how you were saying, you know, you go home and you really do replay everything. Yeah. Um, talk to me about social rejection. Because yeah. in those moments where, especially like if you're on a first day, or let's just say you're really comfortable with somebody yeah. and you're going out and you start to spot these things, yeah. it starts to make you uncomfortable, but sometimes you almost can't put words to it. Yeah. And so I've heard you even say like when you label something, it alleviates any anxiety that that social rejection may cause. Yes. Okay. So there's two different things going on. Is that one thing we have to understand is, we are constantly speed reading cues. Like today we're talking about the specific steps mm-hmm. in speed reading, but you're actually already doing it. Your brain is constantly looking for hundreds, if not thousands of cues in a day. That's why people can get so drained by social interactions, especially like my introverts and my ambiverts. I'm an ambivert. Mm-hmm. You know, introverts are so drained because they're getting a barrage of cues thrown at them. They don't know how to interpret always. So you're constantly speed reading. And what happens is when our brain sees a negative cue, it affects our body, it affects our physiology. So for example, one study, uh, this was helpful for me because it made me understand why I get social anxiety sometimes. They had people go into a room and they flashed them a cue of social rejection. So a cue of social rejection could be a an eye roll. Mm. It could be a a scoff and turn away. It could even be a negative dismissive voice tone like, great idea, right? Those are all cues of social rejection, and we don't like them, right? Mm. We do not like to be socially rejected. So when they flash this cue of social rejection, people's field of vision increased. 
their pupils dilated immediately so they could take in more of the environment. Why? If we see a cue of social rejection, our body goes, "Uh uh-oh, are there more cues? Mm -hmm. Who else is sending me cues? Do I have to leave? Where's my escape route? And what do I do? Right? So our body is reacting to these whether we know it or not. That's why you could be with someone and be like, I don't feel good. Why do I not trust this person? Is your body is reading these cues and your, your instinct is like something's off here. And so if you name it, one, you feel more in control of it. And two, it usually deactivates it. And here's the second study. So the study was done at UCLA by Dr. Matthew Lieberman. And what he wanted to know is, okay, we get sent these cues, these negative cues, and we catch them. You know, negative cues are contagious. For, for example, if he puts people in a brain scanner and he shows them a fear face, so if I show you if your face, so if your face is, we raise our eyebrows up, we widen our eyes, we, right? like that's a fear face. If I were to, if you were to see that face on the subway, you'd be like, what's wrong? Oh yeah. Like Clutch my bag, make and, sure that I'm near the door that I can run. I can give you fear just by showing you that face. And that is exactly what he found is if he puts people in an MRI machine and he shows them a fearful face, they will catch the fear. Okay. <sighs> so that's very powerful. And it's like, what do we do with that? So what he found was, is when he instructed participants to label the emotion, fear, it immediately deactivated that response in their brain. So they see fear, it activates fear in their amygdala, and they say fear, the amygdala activation goes away. So I think that there's an empowerment to knowing these cues that are being sent to you. So if you're on a date or you're in a meeting and you see someone who sends a cue to you that you don't like, and you can go lip purse disgust. You don't catch it. It's less contagious. You immediately feel more in control of it. And then you can decide what to do next. Do you confirm it? Do you ignore it? Do you say this person's not for me? Mm. So much easier. No less overthinking at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so amazing. And to think that you can catch fear is insane. I've got actually something for you that I'd like to ask you. Oh, I don't know the answer. So I got my brain scanned by Dr. Amon. And as part of the test, they show you these faces and they flash forward. Yeah. And you have to say which one's anger, which one's fear, which one's happy, which one's sad and which one's neutral. And so it shows you a face and it basically you have to touch the the word of the expression. At the end, and I didn't actually get deep into it, but at the end, he gives you the results. And he said, Lisa, you're really good at detecting happy. You're really good at detecting um, uh, angry and neutral, but I'm terrible at detecting fear that I kept misinterpreting it as happy. And I'm like, I don't know if that's good. I don't understand what that means. So what do you think that means? Probably that, so fear, let's look at them, right? So so anger is a a downward face. You harden your lower lids, you press your lips together. Um, Fear is a a big face, right? You widen your eyes, you widen your eyebrows, you open your mouth. It's not that far away from happiness, right? So if this is happiness, (gasps) right? And this is fear, (gasps) they're both mouth open, open. So it's like, it's almost as if you're seeing fear as excited. Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. Like emotionally stimulated? Yes. <laughs> a little bit. But yeah. So that means, that means that has a really big effect for you for the relationships in your life. If you misinterpret fear as happiness, it oh, means um, when you're making someone nervous, you think you're actually stimulating them. And that's why I brought it up because I thought if we aren't yeah. detecting the right cues, how often do people leave and you're like, that was the best freaking day? Like, 
I nailed it or the best <laughs> interview or the yeah. best job interview, totally. whatever, right? And you think you've nailed it. Totally. And then you get all the feedback that it was terrible, that they don't want to see you anymore. And you're like, what the hell happened? That's it. That is, that is the single biggest way that we get students is oftentimes oh. our students or most of our students are like high achieving professionals. And this is at your school. At my school, yeah. yeah that they, they don't come to us necessarily because they had a bad performance review. That does happen. It's actually usually... Someone thinks, I thought I killed it in my performance review. I thought I am nailing it in these interviews and I'm just not getting any jobs. I'm getting terrible feedback. It's that horrible feeling when you think something went well and then you're rejected, which is worse than doing bad at something. When you know you're bad at something, you can work on it, yeah. right? When you think you're good at something and then you're blindsided, that feeling of being blindsided, my mission is to help people never feel blindsided. Mm. I don't want you to feel blindsided by a bad person, by a bad actor, by a bad boyfriend, by a cheating incident. I don't want you to feel blindsided at work where you thought you did great in a presentation and actually didn't land, or you thought you did a good interview, you didn't land. I think that we we can actually tackle that. I think we can make sure that we're not blindsided. So what are the keys to not be blindsided? Okay. So, well, there's two sides of cues, right? There's decoding and encoding. Mm. So we've been talking a lot about decoding. So decoding are noticing the signals that are being sent to you and being able to accurately read them and then knowing what to do. That's one way of not being blindsided is you're accurately able to decode. Mm -hmm. The other way is encoding. Encoding are the social signals you send. So it's knowing what cues you are sending with your hands, your voice, what we were talking about at the beginning about your punctuator. That's actually encoding. And that's another way to not be blindsided is making sure that you know that you're going in as your most charismatic, your most confident self so that you are showing up as your best self. That helps not being blindsided. Obviously, you can't control the other person, but those kind of work together. So when you learn a cue, whenever I teach it, it's like, okay, it's the decoding. So you know that disgust, if you see it, someone might be, ugh, I don't like this. Like if you, if someone says to you, oh yeah, I, I loved you in that project, they probably didn't mm. unless they were, you baseline them that. Great. You don't want to be blindsided and be like, Hey, you know, I'd love to get into the nitty gritty of that. You know, what, what parts did you like? But there has to be something you didn't like. I'd love to know what that is, right? Mm. Like you just decoded something that allows you to then be like, no, no, I want to get the full picture here, right? Like I don't want to be blindsided on this. And then next time encoding to make sure you are not accidentally showing disgust, <laughs> right? So every cue has both sides, the decode and the encode. As I love that. And one question, does it make a difference if you're a man or a woman? I'm going to say no. Oh. I'm going to say no because as humans, we are constantly decoding and encoding. We're decoding with other women. We're encoding with other men. Like it doesn't matter. We're always, those two mechanisms are always working. So mm. I'm going to say no. There are certain cues that might come across differently, but for the most part, no, it doesn't matter. Every single human should know how to decode and encode these cues. Mm. What um, codes are slightly different for the man, men and women? Women flirt differently than men. Oh. Women instinctually, and also we are attracted to different things on men and women. So for example, with women, we typically, that Marilyn Monroe look, whenever you're trying to think about like what's attractive in a woman, Marilyn Monroe had it down. I don't know if she did it naturally or she learned it, but you know, she would tilt her head up. She would smile a lot. She'd hood her lids. And so that's why you'll notice if a woman's being very flirtatious, they tend to go soft is what I say. So you'll notice like when women are being particularly flirtatious, they tend to like go soft in their neck. <laughs> right. They tend to go soft in their wrist. Right. So you'll notice a woman will often go soft in her wrists like this. You'll notice that like when women smoke cigarettes, they tend to smoke like this. 
like very soft in the wrist. They expose part of the wrist. When men smoke, they tend to smoke like this. Oh, and that is the exposing of the wrist. That's, is that the same thing then for the neck? Same. Oh, yeah. So we yeah. have a lot of pheromones. Um, we, release, mm. we release a lot of scent here, right? This is also a very vulnerable part of our body, right? We have a lot of veins here. And so this is, uh, we don't want to expose it if we feel uncomfortable. So a woman will often look open, right? And expose things when she exposes. So she'll see she smokes like this, mm. exposing, exposing, or she'll sit like this exposing, exposing, or she'll make hand gestures like this, exposing, whereas men almost very rarely do. And they want to look strong, right? Like this part of a man is, I find very attractive. Do you like this the part arms. of a man? Yeah. yeah. Like the front of the yeah. arm, like the forearm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. like, 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 we like mm-hmm. a strong man. You even so did want, that. Yeah. I like, like, I want, I want to see like, you know, some veins yeah. and yeah. like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. Like, so like that's like strength, right? Cause you can have muscles here. Mm-hmm. And so a man will often be more like this. Like he'll gesture more with like this showing and he'll like smoke like this. Mm-hmm. He'll sit like this much more this way. You also have men who will, will expose this and that's a softer side of them. Right. And certain people are attracted to that. Mm-hmm. Right. So. It's a spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, I love that because I, you know, the amount of times that we've spoken, it never dawned on me that if there are different cues from, because I think of it just like there are different cues from different, um, like nationalities, like even just like the Greeks, right? They behave in a certain way that in another, you know, nationality may seem insane or crazy. Yes. Um, Actually, we should have made a cultural note with nodding. I should have made this note. So in my book, I try to always have culturally specific references because there are universal cues, Mm -hmm. of course, but there are, of course, cultural differences. And I try to reference them so we know. So for example, this in Western cultures and European cultures and every culture except Bulgaria, India, and Pakistan, this means yes. The nodding. This means no. Yes. Right? So this means I agree with you. Keep going. Keep talking. And this means I don't like it. Stop talking. No, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. In India, Bulgaria, and Pakistan, it's different. Like they often will nod like this. Sometimes this means yes. Sometimes they nod like this. It means something different. So yeah. in that particular culture, there's a difference um, in the, the, the way that we nod. And also like in Italy, the amount of hand gestures that you can use in a conversation is much higher than here. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, like, like okay, yeah. So like, <laughs> like if you're not using a lot of hand gestures, there's something's wrong, right? Where here, if you were to use the same amount of hand gestures, people would think it was distracting. Mm. Now, hand gestures, visible hands are good universally, but the amount of good is different for cultures, oh. right? So most cues have a universal kind of basis, but how that they're used has a spectrum, right? Like even the amount of eye contact, like in Western cultures, I just looked up this stat. In Western cultures, we like 60 to 70% eye contact during conversation. So that means we can look away when we're thinking mm. or when we're processing something. I just read this. I think it was Dr. Michael Argyle found that we like to, when we're speaking, we only make eye contact 41% of the time. Right. Cause when I'm processing, like when I was just trying to remember mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. I was closing my eyes because I was like trying to remember the statistic. And you were okay with that because you recognize, ah, she's processing. Yes. So like there's a cue that I constantly want to debunk, which drives me crazy, which is when you look up to the left, you're <laughs> lying. When you look up to the right, you're not true. <laughs> not true. In fact, for lefties, it can be reversed. You also have people who will process that way. Right. This is an important thing during your baseline. So we can go back to baselining, right? We were talking about at the beginning. Where does someone look when they're telling the truth? That is something you should know about the three most important people in your life. So think about right now, my challenge for anyone who's learning speed reading is think of three people in your life that you want to be able to speed read. It could be someone who's been in your life a long time. It could also be a new person. Like if you're going on a date coming up or there's someone you're newly dating. So think of those three people. If you can, 
Get out a pen and paper. It really helps to write this down. And make three columns. Baseline, red flags, confirmation. In the baseline column, I want you to write down everything they do when they're telling the truth. They nod, they make certain facial expressions. Which way do they look when they're telling the truth? The way that you find this out is you ask non-socially scripted questions that someone wouldn't lie about. So in our lab, we do, I love to have uh, do lie detection research. We have people come into our lab and we ask them the basic socially scripted questions, similar to what you would do on a date. So where are you from? What's your name? How old are you? Right? Like the kind of the basic mm-hmm. things that like people aren't even thinking and we see what do they look like. And we literally, we, we, we code all their cues from toes wow. all the way up. Like, are they a shaker? Right? Like, do uh. they, right? Are they that when they're telling the truth? Right? How do they sit? Are they relaxed? Right? So we code everything. And then we go into what we call our emotional baseline questions. These are questions that we don't think that they have socially scripted. They're a little bit unique. And they should like arouse them a little bit, not sexually, but just like in terms of like, it should like make them feel something, mm. um, but they should, wouldn't lie about it. So a great one is, you want to do it? Should I ask you? Yeah. Okay. Here's one. Um, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? Um, chicken with encrusted in almonds, um, asparagus and peppers and olives. Okay. So we should just baseline Lisa, okay. right? So you looked up and to your left. Yeah. That's how you access the memory. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really important to know where does someone access mm. their memories. So when you just recalled, you immediately looked up. So you access memories up there. Mm-hmm. So if I were baselining you, I would say, okay, access his memories up to their left. And that's because that's something that why would I even lie? So assume that that is the answer they'd give, identify where they're looking, jot that down. Right. Got it. And like you were very like direct and very specific. You actually had your hands quite closed. You weren't using a lot of facial expressions. So that is how you look when you're recalling something Mm. honest. Then the next level, the next column is the red flag column. This is where you go into questions where you're looking to see you either were already suspicious or you want to make sure they're telling you the truth and you're looking for differences. I'm like getting nervous now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to do it to you right now. I'm not going to do it to you right now. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't call your tell out on camera. We could do it later. Okay. Over dinner. Um, Okay. So let's say that, let's say in a theoretical example that then, okay, so I just baselined you on a date and I'm like, okay, she accesses memories over there. If I were to say, so why'd you break up with your ex? Right. Or tell me about your relationship with your ex. Or have you ever cheated on someone? All those questions. Yeah. If someone, if that person's telling the truth, you can usually know, do they look like what they just look like? Mm. right like did they look up that way or did they start looking up another way or down or away right you can look for differences in that so that's that red flag area is like what's different all of a sudden that i've just been asking all these questions i also like in that emotional baseline to stay as much as possible like in our lab we ask a lot of hard questions and we say please tell us the truth and we'll often say things like you know what was your worst experience at your last job and there's no reason for them to lie with us. And you'll see them get nervous, upset. They'll show negative mm. emotions, right? But they're true emotions. Mm. And then we play a little game in our lab. And you can do this at home if you'd like, where we ask them to lie to us. And we do it with two different scenarios. First, we ask them to tell us their most embarrassing moment. This is a great one, by the way. If you're on a date, ask someone, what was your most embarrassing moment, right? That way you're accessing an emotion that was embarrassing, mm. right? It's going to be negative. You're going to see negative things. So we ask them, tell us your most embarrassing story and give us as much detail as possible. We, we have some great stories. People tell us some really funny, embarrassing moments and people like sweat and people like get really mm. anxious about it, right? So they tell us their most embarrassing story. And then we ask them, 
please come up with a fake embarrassing story and tell it to us as if it's real. And we don't give them much time. And we keep them on camera the entire time to like try to see how fast they process a lie. Because we ask them to lie to us, right? Then they deliver the fake embarrassing story. And it's incredible how different they look. You will see what lying looks like in action. And there are a couple of red flags that come up over and over again. So I call these the danger zone cues, right? So danger zone cues, in my book, I have a chapter on this. And like, it was so long that my editor was like, we can't. I was like, but there are so many. (laughs) That's your next book. Yeah, the danger cues. Oh my goodness. So yes. So there's a lot of them, but we can talk about a couple of just yeah. ones that are common. Now there's no Pinocchio's nose. There's no way to know for sure if someone is lying. If there was, we wouldn't have any liars, right? <laughs> but there are statistical cues to deceit. Cues that often come up over and over again when someone is lying. So the, statistically speaking, these are pretty common, but they're not sure. They're not foolproof, right? That's why you have to make sure you're baselining and you have to make yeah, sure you confirm. I love that. Okay. So um, common, touching the nose. For some reason, we have tissue in our nose that um, itches and swells with blood when we lie. And so people will often do that when they're lying. Uh, cheaters, if you watch the show Cheaters or you watch any show where people are talking to cheaters, you'll notice that people cheaters will often touch their nose really? um, when they do it, uh, especially if they're lying about it. It's like a shame uh, <gasps> thing. So touching the nose all of a sudden. Now, if someone's been touching the nose during their baseline, not a red flag. Or if they've got allergies or a cold, not a red Contact. flag. Right. Mm. But if all of a sudden they're like, well, um, you know, my ex, she was, you know, we were, we were just had a lot of differences. Like there is a lot there, mm-hmm. right? Like that's more questions. That's the confirmation column, which is the third one. So touching the nose is one of them. A lip purse is another. So a lip purse is when we press our lips into a hard line. Mm. We often do this when withholding. You'll often people will, mm, well, they're like trying to think, how do I say this in a way that's not going to sound terrible? Like if you ask someone a hard question, like how much do you weigh? They'll be like, <laughs> like they immediately lip purse because we don't want to answer that question. So lip pursing is not a sign of lying, but it's a sign of like, I don't love this question. And I might be thinking about how I'm withholding. Like hesitation. Yes. Like hesitation withholding. So when I see it, I'm always, again, I'm just making a note. Like I'm paying attention. Like, hmm. There was something there that made them feel like I have to hold back a little bit, mm. right? And that's when I'll say like, hey, like, we're good. Like, you know, I'm on your side. Like, I just want to know, honestly, like, you're not going to upset me. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. That moment, they may be thinking, oh, like out of anxiety, right? Like, and it may not come out as like they're, they're lying, but they have the anxiety over the question. So they pierce their lips. Yes. So and now you may perceive as introverts. Mm. So I work with a lot of introverts mm. and I say we have to respect our introverts. So introverts often, if they're asked too personal of a question or they're asked to brainstorm on the spot, mm. an introvert is much more introspective. They like to take time to focus. They don't like verbalizing all their feelings or their ideas. So if you're in a meeting with them and you're like, so Elisa, tell me what you think. Um, I like it. Like, it's not necessarily that they're lying. It's just that you put them on the spot in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. Mm. So for them, I say, okay, if you saw that after the meeting, follow up in writing. Don't approach them after the meeting. That's mm. also going to make introvert nervous. In writing, say, hey, I just want to follow up with the meeting. I know I asked you very quickly about your thoughts on the project, but I'd love if you have any other thoughts to share. In the next few days, email those over. Mm. Like, respectful. Like, I'm not going to like, so tell me really, what do you really think about that? That's like an introvert's like, no. 
please no. Right. So a lip purse is just a sign of um, something dig deeper there. The shame gesture is another one. Uh, shame is when we touch the side of our forehead. I don't know why. I think it's an eye blocking behavior. Mm. Like we block. So we don't like something as humans. Mm. We do a number of things. We uh, block, so we'll often cross our arms and try to like get away from it. We distance, right? We might turn away. We also will sometimes cover our eyes or uh, pinch the bridge of our eyes. It's a way of like, I don't like it. Like like little kids, when they hear bad news, they like, (laughs) but it's the same kind of instinct as human. We don't like something. So blocking behaviors, like closing off or shutting down. Anytime you see a sudden difference in a baseline, you're like, what is happening? Actually, I'd love to go a little deeper when you said if you're dealing with an introvert. So how many, um, and you mentioned it slightly earlier about personality traits. And so as I was thinking about, as you break it down, help me navigate different types of personalities Mm. and different people's moods. Because I assume, right, it's like, let's say you've caught me on a really bad day. Like things are just not going well in my life. Let's say something really bad has happened at work. Someone's also quit. Someone in my family is like, like, just imagine the worst case scenario. And now I walk in the room. I'm not necessarily going to walk in the room as my typical like lively self. So the cues I may be giving can be interpreted maybe um, in a wrong manner. based on who they think I am, but actually it's my mood. Okay. So that's the third column, confirmation, moods, context, right? Like I am not my best self in a very loud environment. Like I'm much quieter. I'm much more nervous. Like that would not be me on a good day. So context, mood, those can all change things. So the last column is confirmation. It's that you baseline someone, you know what they look like when they're honest and truth. Then you see a couple of red flags in this area. The third column is the most important. It's your column where you're like, is this really what I saw? And what is the reason for this? Mm-hmm. I like to take a Pollyanna approach to lie detection <laughs> in that we should assume the best, right? We have yes. to assume the best in people because if we do that, we are not going to get as many false positives, right? Or like we're not going to see as many false lies. Oh, because right? I do the opposite. I almost go in scrutinizing people yeah. until they've proven. I think that's from having been bullied as a kid, probably, and having um, trust issues with people when I first meet them. Absolutely. That's a filter that you have. Mm. So they actually studied this. They found that people who are more skeptical, people who are not Pollyanna, catch less lies. Oh, what? And have more false positives. Whereas Pollyannas, people who are more trusting, people who have more of an optimistic outlook, actually do better at catching the lies. Wow. So I want you to really go into it with, I noticed all these things, but I'm not going to make a judgment yet. I need to confirm. And the Mm. confirmation column can look a lot of different ways. It can be a second date, right? Like, Mm. let's see if the mood is different. It can be a change of context. Hey, let's get out of here and go get some coffee or like go to a quieter Mm. bar. Or hey, let's move into the kitchen. It's so loud in this room, right? So it can be a move of context. It can be a a, a different, another time. It can also be going into the topic again with a different set of questions. Right. So if it was, let's say that you saw a lot of red flags about their ex, right? And you're like, oh my goodness, I saw all kinds of red flags. Now we don't know why. We don't know if it's because that ex cheated on them or they were cheating on that ex. Mm-hmm. They don't know if it's because it was a bad breakup. We don't know why. So that confirmation column could be simply asking better, more deeper questions about that topic. So you can figure out what is the source of this cue, right? A lot of the times with cues, you'll see a negative cue, but you don't know what it is. Like if I'm with someone and I see contempt, contempt is a micro expression of hatred or disdain. It's a one-sided mouth raise. And it's what, like the number one thing that all marriages, I think, end up failing is they see the sign of contempt. Right. So Dr. John Gottman can predict Mm. with 93.6% accuracy 
if a couple will get divorced by watching a silent video of them just looking for contempt. It's a very negative emotion. It's often a sign of disrespect, right? So if someone's like showing contempt at you, that means there's a scorn, disrespect. It's very hard to get over that in a relationship. So let's say that I'm in a conversation with someone or I'm you know, hiring someone and I see contempt. I cannot assume that contempt is about me. It might be, but it also could be self-contempt. It could be contempt for the question. It could be contempt for a very, very bad day. And they're having an internal dialogue that's very negative. So that's why that confirmation column is so important. Okay, if like, let's say I'm in an interview and someone shows me contempt and I'm like, what is this? Is it me? Is it the job? Is it? And then I'm like, okay, I want to do a second interview and I'm going to bring someone else so they can see if they got it. And we're going to change the context. I'm not going to do Zoom. I want to do in person, right? And then I do the interview again and I ask a different set of questions. And maybe I ask the same question that caused the contempt last time in a different way. Mm. And I see, does it come up again, right? Is it different in context? And that confirmation column is your last one. I like to look for a rule of three. If I see the same negative cluster three times in a row with three different contexts or three different questions, I go, okay, it's time for me to make a decision. That's sort of my like rule of thumb. So the confirmation column is how we make sure that our mood doesn't give us a false, a false answer. That's amazing. How, um, how often have you been wrong after the three strikes? Often. Ah. That's why that confirm, that's why that confirmation column mm-hmm. is an essential part of the process. I think the biggest mistake that people make is they say, oh, like he had a terrible red flag. I can't trust him. But if you don't do that third column, you're going to, you're going to misinterpret. It's the only way to make sure that we're being accurate readers mm-hmm. of people. And like, that's the whole goal here, right? Like I, I approach relationships as we're all searching for connection. People are inherently good. We're trying to make amazing relationships. And so we have to give people the benefit of working to get the three confirmations before we write them off or dismiss them or create a boundary because otherwise we might miss the opportunities to connect. Yeah, it's so freaking powerful. Talk to me also though about the, uh, what do you call it? The hearing gestures that we don't necessarily um, realize that we're doing. So in our voices, like even if you weren't looking at me, you can tell whether I'm animated, like that you can actually hear someone's mood based on their body language that you can't necessarily see. Yes. Okay. So um, vocal baseline is another way you can do this. So like, let's try, if if you do a lot of phone calls, this is a really helpful one. But I also, I, if you have an ear for it, you like vocal baseline. So vocal baseline is like, how does someone sound when they're telling the truth and when they're, you know, acting a certain way? One experiment we did in our lab is I wanted to know if facial expressions change the sound of voices. So what we did is we brought people into our lab and we had them do a vocal first impression. So a vocal first impression is the first word that someone says. And it's actually where research has found that we decide how confident someone is within a hundred milliseconds of hearing them speak. That's hello. That's it. Why? Why does this work this way? Is because our vocal cords are very sensitive to, to tension. So if I'm relaxed, I'm using my maximum resonance point. I'm really down low. My vocal cords are nice and relaxed. Now, I'm going to tighten my voice so you can hear what it sounds like. So if I begin to get anxious or afraid, my vocal cords tighten like this, and I'll go a little higher in my vocal range. I'll also begin to get a lot of vocal fry so that I lose my actual voice, but you can just hear that vocal fry. And that's because I'm tightening my vocal cords very tightly. And so we listen for this. So if I were to say hello... Hello? Oh, you sound so <laughs> like I'm getting anxious for you. Versus yeah. hello? Yeah. Right. So that's me. You can tell it's me. So mm. listen to the difference. Hello? Hello? Like still me, but to- 
totally different perceptions mm -hmm. of confidence, right? Mm -hmm. So your first word in your date, on your Zoom call, in your meeting is actually the most important thing you can do for your confidence. And you want to make sure you're not accidentally giving away your vocal confidence. So we brought people in the lab and we had them do hellos. That's all we had them do, okay? So they went and they sat in the microphone and they said, hello, just like they answered the phone. Yeah. We had them do two control hellos, so they're normal hellos. And then we had them do a happiness microexpression and think of something that made them happy. So we had them think of something that makes you happy, right? And you smile, 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 and then say, hello. Hello. Okay. <laughs> right? So we had them do their hello, their, yeah. their happiness hello. Then we had them think of something that makes them angry. Mm. Angry, angry, angry. Now, pull your eyebrows down, harden your lower lips and say, hello. Hello. Right. Mm. Then we, and by the way, they were, they, these sound very distinct, but in the lab, we didn't, we, we said to them, make your hello kind of sound the same. Don't try to make oh, it sound different. Right, right. Like try to hide it. We just want you to think and feel it. So we had them do an anger microexpression, a happiness microexpression, a neutral expression, a fear expression, hello, and a sadness expression. So a sadness expression is we pull our corners of our lips down and we droop our lower lids and we say hello. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. Now, we, they were not that dramatic. Right? Yeah. They, we, we had them try to hide it. But what we found is that, one, those hellos sounded distinctly different even when they were trying to hide the emotion, which is exactly what happens when you pick up the phone in a bad mood. Mm. Right? You're like, I'm in a really bad mood, but I'm going to try to hide it. Hello? Right? Yeah. Right? This is like me with phone anxiety is I'm like, please don't pick up. Please don't pick up. Please don't pick up. Hey, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it's can we can mm. still hear it. So they sounded different. Same person, but like there was differences. You couldn't know what you were hearing, but you could hear they sound a little bit different. Then we took all those recordings and we had people on our website listen to the hello and answer. I like this person a lot. I like this person a little. I don't like this person at all at all. Right. So they didn't know what they were hearing, right? It was just a random male or female saying hello. And we had them answer these questions. We found there was a there was the most likable hello and the least likable hello. Can you guess which or what? The most likable was the happy and the least likable was the can go with angry. So the most likable hello was happy, but a close second was the last control hello. In other words, once someone was warmed mm. and had gone through the exercise with us and felt really comfortable, their last comfortable hello got really like, so close to the top. Wow. Which means like if you're warmed up and you're kind of comfortable, you also sound very charismatic and confident. The least likable hello was the sadness hello. We do not like to catch mm. sadness. Anger, we can calm down. Fear, we can calm down. We don't like sad people. Interesting. Yeah. And so when you see movies where people are practicing in front of the mirror, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Oh. Like you can work out your nerves. Right? Like you can rehearse out your nerves. Like I, we, we give at our website social meditations. Like just like for how people like to like meditate like with an active exercise before they socialize. Like that really does work. Mm. Okay. So what's interesting about this is like your face, your expressions can change your sound. So before you answer the phone, before you walk into the room, before you say hello, try not to hold your breath. So the thing that can happen is people go, hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> In fact, when I watch some of your interviews, I notice that someone sounds different oh. in the first line versus their most confident answers. It's so funny. Like some of your guests, I'll notice like right at the beginning, they're like, hi, Lisa. Mm. Hello. It's so good to see you. And then once they get to their content, they're like killing it. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, telling like they probably did it today just because I was excited to see you because excitement and highness 
go hand in hand. Oh. Right? Like when we're excited, we yeah, often yeah. go like really high. We're so excited yeah. to see each other. So you have to be really careful to not go too high in the very beginning. So don't hold your breath, right? When you're saying, hey, everyone, that sounds more nervous mm. versus, hey, everyone, like totally different. So make sure you're speaking on the out breath. Try not to hold your breath. And if you can, think of why you're comfortable, confident, happy. That's very contagious. Mm. I love this because when I think about all the things that hold us back, like these moments when we first go, like that first, the first date, that first job interview, that first moment of like, it it, it can be nerve wracking. Mm. And sometimes when you don't know why you've either been rejected or why something's been a no, not being able to self-assess, I just like it leaves you like without being able to maneuver again, whether it's a day or anything. And so at least having these tactics and tools, like I know how I sound now and I've just embraced it, but I know that I'm squeaky. And I know that, <laughs> that when I first say hi to people, I'm like, hey, what's up? Honey? Like, do you think I, you're squeaky? I do. I oh. think I'm so squeaky. It's because when we get excited, we want to be do, high. Like yeah. babies prefer higher voices. Oh, like, yeah. We're trying to be like excitable. It's funny because we just identify, you, you feel that you're squeaky. Tom also told me that he feels that he has a dangerous face. And so it's he, a, a, um, a neutral, oh, what is it? An angry neutral face. Yes, he feels he has an angry neutral face. And he, he, does. he does. And the reason is because of his brows. Yeah. I, I don't know if I told him that, but it's because he has a very strong low brow line. That is why. Mm. It's not, nothing he can control. It's just when we have, like, for example, I'll do it on my face, but like, if I were to be like this, I would look angrier all the time. Mm. He has a very like low uh, brow line. So it actually, he can't even help it. And so what I would say to you both is like, do you have to? Do you have to? Like, you're squeaky. You embrace it. I love oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I like, just go, this is how I am. Too. And so I think that's also yeah. very important to talk about for a second. It's like, okay, like, let's say that you have a negative cue. You know, if that's just you, that's just you, right? Like, sometimes people have resting bitch face, right? Mm. I do. <laughs> and there are times when I'm like, I don't want it, right? I want to make someone feel really comfortable and I want to be, like, you know, looking happier. But there are times where I'm also like, I'm good with how I look. Like, my team knows how I look. Like on our team calls, like I don't pretend that I don't have resting bitch face. They know I have it and I'm fine. I actually call it resting bothered face because I look bothered. Mm. I'm actually not, but it's just my resting face. So there's also an aspect of this is like, yes, you can optimize every cue that you show, but I also want you to feel like you. You know, I, I also want you to show up and feel like you're not faking it till you make it. And so there's a very fine line between I want to optimize my cues. I want to connect with people. I want to show up as my most confident, charismatic self. But I also want you to feel like you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, okay, you're squeaky sometimes. Cool. That's part of your brand, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I have a resting bothered face. Okay. Like it's going to be. It more is serious, what it is. Yeah. Right? So I don't want people to feel like they have to fake it or be something they're not. Can you explain to me why you hate the fake it till you make it? Oh, yeah. I don't like fake it till you make it. <laughs> I'm against it. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that is because we can sniff out fake. It is really hard to pretend to be happy when you're not. And you actually mean you can sniff out fake. Yeah, you can sniff out fake. And so there's a study I talk about in my TED Talk a little bit, which is um, a skydiving study where they had people come into their lab, split up into two different groups. And one group, they wore sweat pads so they could catch their sweat, kind of gross, and run on the treadmill. The other group also wore sweat pads and then skydived for the first time. They had two sweat pads, treadmill sweat pads and skydiving sweat pads. In other words, regular sweat and fear sweat. Mm -hmm. They put people into an MRI and they had them smell the sweat pads. And they didn't know they had no idea what they were smelling, by the way. Like horrible. I hope they paid those people a lot of money to go in that experiment, right? <laughs> yeah. So imagine like you're 
they found that when people smelled the fear sweat, they caught the fear. So when people smelled the fear sweat, they had no idea what they were smelling. Their amygdala began to fire. So if fake it till you make it doesn't work because if you're afraid and then you pretend to be happy by like putting on a happy face, people can smell, catch, feel that fear. And then they're like inauthentic. Mm. They're like, something feels off. You're like, you're smiling at me, but I feel nervous. Like something isn't right. Like there's, I'm catching your fear. So that's why there's certain people, you don't know why you don't quite like them, but like they, they give you like a spidey sense of like they're draining or you don't like them. It's because they're probably faking it. That's why I'm like, I love all these cues and I want you to try them on. And I want you to pick the ones that feel natural to you, but I don't want you to fake being happy if you're not. I would rather, if you're in a bad mood, don't answer the phone. (laughs) If you're in a bad mood, cancel the date. Right. Like, and like, be honest about it. I'm so sorry. I've had a really shitty day. I can't come to the date because I want to be my best self for you. Can we please reschedule for next weekend? Or like, I would much rather you be authentic and real and assertive. And I do believe you can be assertive and nice. I think assertive people are aggressively kind. Mm. Aggressively kind means you're saying what you need. You're showing up so you can be your real self. And that means not showing up sometimes. And that means canceling last minute sometimes. And that means saying, I'm so sorry, I've had a really bad day. Can you help cheer me up? Mm. Like that's what aggressively kind, assertively nice people do. Dude, the pheromone thing is insane. Yeah, it's insane. Like it's, it's insane. it like has so many implications, it's hard to even So comprehend. many. I mean, it kind of really allows us to come full circle from where we even yeah. started, where it comes to gut instinct and intuition. Yeah. Like these are the things that you may not even be able to actually explain. And mm-hmm. maybe a scientist can when they go into deep into pheromones and yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. And I actually understand going back to the caveman days, why that would serve you, yeah. right? Because you don't have time to scream to somebody or to tell somebody, you just sense it. And then so thinking through the fear thing and then how that can show up like on certain days, if one of you is anxious, like then almost like I feel kind of bad for the other person because it's like, or feel for the person that's anxious because now maybe you're putting them off you and you don't, they don't even know why. And it's maybe the pheromones of your fear. This, you just put your finger on why social anxiety happens. Mm. It's a terrible loop. So for those of you who experience social anxiety, I, my heart goes out to you because it is such a struggle because you're stuck in a cycle. And here's the cycle. I call myself a recovering awkward person because I was in the cycle for many years before I was able to break out of it. You're anxious. You're like, I got to go on this date or I got to go to this event. So you push yourself to go. You fake it till you make it, but you're anxious. So everyone around you catches the anxiety. And they're also like, I don't really want to go out with this person again. I don't want to invite them again. I don't want to talk to them, which makes you feel like, why did I even come to this event? Everyone doesn't like me which makes you even more socially anxious. Then you try it again and then you're more socially anxious and you're stuck in this loop of I'm trying to make connections, but I'm anxious. And then you're making these connections, but you're not making the connections because you're so anxious. <laughs> that is the cycle of social anxiety. It can be broken. You just have to figure out how you can be your true self while not triggering your anxiety. 